We begin a new sermon series this morning. Uh, we're going to be going through the Ten Commandments this summer. And before we get there, we're going to spend a few weeks going through the life of Moses leading up to the giving and receiving of the Ten Commandments. So this morning we are in Exodus chapter 2. But before we turn to the Word of God, let us uh, ask the Lord to bless the hearing the reading and hearing uh, of his word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And so, Lord, we come to your word eager for what you will have for us this day. And Lord, we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would illumine this, your word, that we might hear it and receive it and understand it aright, that it might be applied to our lives, that we might live by faith and not by sight. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord, it is written. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds. And sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went. And called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Before we get into the life of Moses, it would be helpful to do a little background work, for we find ourselves this morning in Egypt in this passage. So let's be reminded of how we got to Egypt. We remember that Jacob, who is also called Israel, had 12 sons. 
And these 12 sons are the origin of the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph, one of the youngest sons, is at the center of the narrative at the end of the book of Genesis. And if you recall, Joseph's brothers did not care for him very much because of the attention that he received from Jacob, his father, and because he was having visions of them bowing before him. So while they were all out one day, they conspired to kill him. But then they thought better of it and decided instead to sell him into slavery to some men who are described as Ishmaelites who proceeded to take him to Egypt. But what the brothers had intended for evil, God had intended for good, as Joseph says to his brother at the end of Genesis. God had worked this good, in the words of Joseph, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this, if you recall, is exactly what happened. Through providential events, once Joseph was in Egypt, Joseph went from being a servant in the house of Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, to jail because he was falsely accused. But Joseph was later released from prison when it was brought to Pharaoh's attention that Joseph had the ability to interpret dreams. Pharaoh had had some dreams, and after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams concerning a famine that would follow several years of abundance, Pharaoh made Joseph his right-hand man, charging Joseph to prepare the kingdom for this coming famine by storing up food. Then when the famine finally swept over the land, Joseph had stored up enough food that he was able to distribute food to all in need. And eventually, his own family came to Egypt hungry and looking for food. Joseph and his brothers were reunited and reconciled. Joseph and his father, Jacob, were also reunited. And then all of them, with their wives and children, came to Egypt to live, where Pharaoh gave to them the finest land to settle on, revealing the relationship that Joseph and his family had with Pharaoh. Joseph had, after all, made Pharaoh very wealthy and powerful through providing a necessary commodity. At the beginning of Exodus, though, we find that many years had passed since the time of Joseph. Joseph and what he had done for Egypt had been forgotten. A new Pharaoh was on the throne, and the people of Israel had become many leading the current Pharaoh to become afraid of their power because of their sheer number. So he began plotting to keep them under control. First, he made them slaves who were set to work building the store cities of Python and Ramses. But the people of Israel continued to grow in number despite being oppressed. So next, Pharaoh went to two Hebrew midwives. And he instructed them to kill any male children that they delivered. But the scriptures say that the midwives feared God. So they did not do as they were ordered. And the people of Israel continued to grow in number. Finally, Pharaoh ordered that every male Hebrew child that was born was to be thrown into the Nile River. Killed. 
he ordered in infanticide. And this is where our scripture passage picks up this morning. With this unnamed couple who are only identified here as from the house of Levi. Later in chapter 6, we're going to find out the names of these parents. Anyhow, here in chapter 2, we only know that the wife has given birth to a son who is also unnamed initially. Later, he is named Moses. But rather than throwing this child into the Nile, as Pharaoh had ordered, she decided to hide him instead. And what unfolds in the verses ahead is a remarkable story in which we find extraordinary, an extraordinary series of events that result in this baby boy not only surviving Pharaoh's edict, but growing up in the house of Pharaoh himself. Now, we could read through this story and be amazed at how it unfolds. It is indeed astounding. We could think it all happy coincidence, but there are aspects of this story that point us beyond chance happening, beyond a simple historical narrative that encourage us to see and understand that something far more important is happening here, that something more cosmic in nature is playing out. And this event is extremely important for what is to come in the chapters to follow, but not only because this child that has been born is at the center of what will happen. These verses tell us something deeper about this child than simply the remarkable story of his birth and infancy. These verses also tell us something about God, for this is, as I am certain that most of you know, a story of God's work of salvation. And there are some clues here for us in this regard if we are careful and discerning enough to see them. So let's look at the text. The first clue I want to highlight comes in the second verse, which tells us that when this unnamed mother saw that he, the baby, was a fine child, she hid him. Now, is this simply saying that mother's, Moses's mother's primary motivation for hiding him was because she thought he was a pretty baby? Well, every mother, I think, thinks that they have the most beautiful child in the world. But is the text telling us that if she hadn't thought he were physically attractive, that she would have failed to hide him? No, I think that this verse is hinting at something else, that her decision was not based on external appearance. You see this word fine is meant to point to somewhere more than just the physical. Here is what the Hebrew literally says. She saw that he was good. Now, what does this phrase draw to your mind? Perhaps it reminds you of the refrain from the creation story in Genesis 1. God creates. And when he looks over his work, Scripture tells us, and God saw that it was good. So we know something of what is happening here in Exodus 2. This, there is a creative work taking place. But what is this creative work? Hold that question. We will 
Come back to it in just a moment. Continuing on in the story, verse 3, we find that Moses' mother, when she can no longer hide Moses, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. At some point, for reasons the text does not give us, Moses' mother can no longer hide him. And perhaps his cry has gotten louder than she can muffle. And so she decides to put her baby boy in a basket and to place that basket into the river. And here is where we need to pay special attention to the details. Our second clue. We are told that she took a basket, covered it with bitumen and pitch to make it waterproof What we don't get here in the English is the full meaning of this word translated here as basket. Certainly a basket is what's being used here, but the literal word in the Hebrew is ark. Again, our mind should be drawn back to Genesis, especially to chapter 6 where God speaks to one of his servants, instructing him, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Moses's little floating vessel is meant to draw to mind the story of Noah. And hopefully only three verses into our story, we are beginning to piece things together. It all becomes much clearer as we move through the rest of the story, though, and we find that this baby that's been placed into the river in which so many others had met their watery destruction is delivered by way of his basket, this ark, in the same way that Noah was delivered from a watery death through an ark, so was this baby. What we don't know yet we don't know the whole story is Moses's ark doesn't just look back at the story of Noah in the flood though it also points forward to the crossing through the waters to bring God's people out of Egypt out of the land of slavery the child who was left among the reeds of the Nile in verse 3 will lead the people of God through the sea of reeds what we have typically called the Red Sea, to rescue them from slavery in Egypt. And even Moses' name points to this deliverance. His name is significant. We have six people in the story, only one of whom is named. And we're told that Moses is named a word that sounds like the Hebrew for to draw out because he was drawn out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. But his name not only remembers how he was saved, it also points forward to the way in which God will save his people out of Egypt. And so here in Exodus 2, Moses in many ways represents all of God's people. We're given a glimpse of the mighty work God will do on their behalf through this story of Moses' birth and deliverance. Are you still with me? What we find here in the birth of Moses 
is not just one who is saved from death, but one who is used to bring about salvation to others, one through whom God will continue his creative work of redemption. This is why Moses' birth uses creation language. Just as Noah had been used by God for his salvific purposes to deliver the world from evil, to repopulate the earth after the flood, a renewal of creation, so to speak, so too through Moses' life, God will deliver his people from evil. They will be given new life and new purpose. And hopefully, we are seeing that Scripture does not intend to just present this narrative as historical matter of fact it's certainly not being given a certainly not being viewed as a matter of chance it is of course giving us the true story of Moses's birth but we're seeing here much more than that and more importantly the main character of the story is not only unnamed but he is also unmentioned There is one very clearly behind all of the details who is working things out according to his great purpose, who is working in and through human history to accomplish salvation. It is God who is at work in and through Moses' parents, directing their steps to save their son from a watery death. It is God who is at work through Pharaoh's daughter who takes pity on a crying child, even though she realizes probably because he is marked by circumcision that this child is a Hebrew. It is God who is at work in Moses's sister who approaches Pharaoh's daughter and offers to fetch a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby boy, which is how Moses's mother is allowed to continue to nurse him and get paid to do so. God's sovereign saving hand is evident in every little detail as one commentator puts it there are divine fingerprints all over the narrative and so even as Moses is presented here as the main character his life is pointing to one who is far greater and this is our story It's my prayer that as we went through Mark's gospel these past few months, we saw God's sovereign hand at work accomplishing our salvation through Jesus Christ. How at every turn it was God who was in control. Even when Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tried, beaten, and hung on a cross to die, it was all for us in our salvation. Moses' birth shows us that there are perhaps unexpected twists to God's salvific work, like Moses being sent right into the heart of Pharaoh's house to become the one who would be used to defeat him. Sort of like Jesus dying a criminal's death and being sent right into the heart of death to be the one who would defeat it for us. So don't miss here what is revealed about God in his salvific work in and through Moses. And don't miss that this story is telling us about how God is involved with his creation. He was and still is in control, working out his purposes. But there is another very important detail in this story that can be easily overlooked because it's lying right under the surface. When we 
dig down into the story, it is without doubt God's work from beginning to end, but we should take note that God's sovereign work of salvation does not eliminate the importance of human responsibility. We see this clearly presented to us in the book of Hebrews, which tells us that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Hebrews, therefore, makes explicit what is implicitly implied in the text. So while we shouldn't miss that God is at work here, we also shouldn't miss that it is by way of his faithful people that he works out his purposes. And this faith of Moses' parents, especially that of his mother, is worth meditating on for a moment. And what a wonderful day to meditate on the faithfulness of Moses' mother, who is later identified as Jochebed. When we look at Moses' mother, look at her action here in this passage, we find that it was dictated by her faith, not by fear. It was by faith that she hid him. In other words, she trusted God with her life and her son's life. And even when she finally puts Moses into the river, it is with a creative act of disobedience. She isn't giving in to fear here. Rather, she's doing what all of us who have been given the responsibility to parent children are called to do, knowing that she cannot save her child. She is in faith entrusting her child to God. Therefore, she's not motivated by a fear of what might happen to her if she disobeys what Pharaoh had commanded. Now, Hebrews does not give us the substance of her faith, but I think it's safe to assume that she knew God to be faithful and good. She was thinking about the God who had delivered Noah and his family from the flood. She's thinking about the God who had called Abram and had promised to make of him a great nation and had delivered on his promise, even when human logic thought it impossible to provide a son to Abram and his wife. She was thinking about how God had also provided for Isaac and Jacob through whom his promise continued. She was thinking about how God had been faithful to Joseph and had used him in mighty ways, about how God had used what had been intended for evil for good, about how God had used Joseph to bring about salvation. And surely she was thinking about how God was, even in the midst of their suffering, even in the midst and despite Pharaoh's evil plans, already making Israel to be a great nation. So what we find in Exodus 2 are the actions of a mother who trusts in God, even in spite of the circumstances. His mother trusted that her God is mighty to save. And so we have a wonderful picture here, an example of a faith that overcomes fear. The interesting thing is, if we look back, we find that fear has already become a theme of this book. Pharaoh was motivated by fear. He is said 
to be afraid according to chapter 1 verse 9 that the people of Israel are too many and too mighty this is why he went about making them slaves as we have already said the Hebrew midwives he instructed to kill the male Hebrew babies are also said to be afraid this was a different type of fear though They do not follow Pharaoh's orders because they feared God, according to chapter 1, verses 17 and 21. And now again in chapter 2, the book of Hebrews tells us that Moses' parents, like the midwives, were not afraid of Pharaoh. Fear, as we will discover, will be a reoccurring theme in Exodus. Time and time again, the people of God are confronted with the option either to shrink in fear or to step out in faith. To trust that God is working all things for the good of his people. What would they do when they find the Egyptians charging after them when they stand on the banks of the Sea of Reeds? What would they do when they were confronted with the challenges of life in the wilderness, when they were hungry and thirsty, wandering around what seemed like aimlessly? Would they dare to believe that the one true God is caring for them, fighting for them, providing for them, guiding them? Would they dare to find in God their shelter, their stronghold, their fortress, their satisfaction? Or would the fear of their circumstances lead them to take matters into their own hands, to try to create their own safety, their own provision? Fear, we find, is a very real and persistent threat to our faith. We find in Exodus that many times God's people fail in this regard, but this is what the wilderness is all about. It's a formative time in which the people of God learn to trust God, which means having a faith in him that overcomes fear. So how about you? Would you have the faith of Moses's mother to disobey Pharaoh, to entrust your life and the life of your child to God when God is unseen? But the threat from Pharaoh is very real and present. Do you have a faith which can overcome your deepest fears? This is the faith that God desires for us, that he works to create in us. It's a faith that recalls all that God has done for his people, even sending his only son to suffer and die, that they might be delivered from the dominion of darkness and brought into his marvelous light that they might be delivered from slavery to sin and death and brought into freedom of new life in him with a spirit enabled will to live in obedience to him i think it's helpful to note here though that we shouldn't look at this story of moses and think that having a faith that overcomes fear will keep us from suffering Any gospel that promises that having the right amount of faith will keep bad things from happening to us is a false gospel. We need to be clear on this point. The witness of Scripture is not that God will keep you from suffering. Rather, what Scripture wants us to understand is that God is with us through our suffering. That all of our suffering is small in comparison to the promises that God has for the one who perseveres in faith. That all of our suffering is not wasted, but is used for God's glory. 
If Moses' parents remembered the story of Joseph, then they are very aware of this reality. Joseph was not kept from suffering. Rather, it was in and through Joseph's suffering that God brought about his saving work. So when they hid Moses, when they placed Moses in that water, they surely did so trusting that no matter what happened, it would be according to God's good purposes. Therefore, faith that overcomes fear is a faith that is not afraid of anything that the world will throw at it, that will hold fast through suffering because it's a faith that understands that there is nothing in all of creation that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that understands that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been made more than conquerors in him that sees the things of this world as rubbish compared to the things God is preparing for those who love him, that knows that God will work out his purposes even through our suffering and use our suffering to refine us and make us fit for his kingdom, that trusts that if God did not spare his only beloved son for our sakes, that he will not withhold anything from us that we truly need. Our attitude, therefore, must be as the Hebrew midwives that defied Pharaoh even to his face. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel who were willing to go to the fiery furnace rather than to be unfaithful to God. Do you remember what they tell the Babylonian king? They tell them that the God whom they serve is able to deliver them and they trust that he will deliver them. But then they add, even if he is not, they will still not commit idolatry against him. What they are essentially saying is our God will save us, but if not, we're willing to die to live in faithful obedience to him because even in our death, he is still good. So the question is, Who or what are you going to fear? Man, your circumstances, or God? And here's the issue. Fear is not a bad thing when our fear is correctly placed. God created fear that we might flee true danger and find true safety. Scripture tells us that having a fear of God is good and healthy, If we fear the Lord, then we turn away from evil. So when we talk about faith overcoming fear, we're not speaking of faith overcoming a healthy fear of the Lord. But in our fallen world, fear has been perverted by the evil one. We end up fearing the wrong thing. Rather than fearing God and turning away from evil, we end up fearing evil and turning away from God. Are you with me? We stop trusting that God will care for us. And so we turn to our own devices, which is exactly what the evil one desires. When we're going through Mark's gospel, we read the story of Jesus calming the storm. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee. If you remember, Jesus is sleeping in the front of the boat when a huge storm blows in. The disciples are terrified. They're filled with fear and they wake Jesus up and ask if he cares that they're perishing. 
Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and speaks peace to them. And then he rebukes the disciples, saying, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And do you remember the disciples' response? Mark says this, and they, the disciples, were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, the disciples had feared the wrong thing. Their fear, though, was redirected when they witnessed Jesus command the wind and the waves. No longer did they fear the natural world and its power. They feared instead the one who controlled it. I know the thought of fearing God is not appealing to us, especially in this culture in which we live. But this is precisely what Mark wants us to see in that passage. We are to fear God and turn from evil, not fear evil and turn from God. Having a fear that overcomes, a faith that overcomes fear means that we have a healthy fear of the one who can speak calm to the wind and the waves because we recognize that as powerful as the wind and the waves may be, there is one whose voice they obey. As powerful as our adversaries may be, there is one who is far more powerful. Therefore, our faith needs to be in him alone. Moses' parents refused to fear evil. They did not turn from God and submit to Pharaoh's edict. Rather, they turned from evil because they feared God just as the midwives had before them. So, beloved, do you have a faith that overcomes fear? Do you have the faith to follow Jesus wherever he calls you, even if it means giving up everything you ever wanted, your comfort, your wealth, your status? Do you truly believe that your satisfaction lies in him alone? Do you have the faith to be seen as odd in the eyes of the world, to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as an alien of this world and a citizen of heaven? Do you have faith to even stare death in the face and boldly proclaim, O death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Do you? Or put conversely, do you have fears that are preventing you from living in faithful obedience? What are they? And why do you hold them to be more powerful than God? This passage begs these questions of us, and it's my prayer that we would see the one whose sovereign hand is behind it all, that we would see that he is good and faithful and just, and that we would walk by faith and not by sight, and that we would put our lives into the hands of Almighty God. It's in his name. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that you would strengthen our faith, that you would cast out our fear, that you would give us courage and boldness to follow after Jesus Christ, trusting that if he 
joyfully ran the race that was set before him, enduring the pain of the cross. Lord, that you are working for our good. Lord, help us to trust in that promise. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ and profess what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.